if you pay close attention to the news, you might have recently heard that we are at war. It's not at war with a new terrorist threat. We're not at war with either a particular, particular country or a rogue government. We need neither soldiers nor weapons to fight this war. It's not the war on drugs. It's not the war on cars. But trust that we are at war. We must be. After all, I heard it on Fox News. In a segment, Making the Rounds on YouTube, Tucker Carlson was recently interviewing a talking head who was speaking in what you'd hope was satire, but was sadly entirely legit, about the global tyranny of the metric system. It seems that unbeknownst to most of us, the way we measure certain things was actually an evil plot conceived of in the days of the French Revolution, or so I recently learned, as a way of destroying history. A conspiracy that, according to the report, has been successful in every country but America. Said the talking head, our system is quaint, but it's ours. It connects us to our ancestors through cups, teaspoons, and tablespoons. I could still cook the recipes of my grandparents, and it's that connection to the past that the French Revolution and the revolutionaries have always tried to destroy. I wish I were making this up. Little did you know that when you were out buying your two-liter carton of milk, you were participating in such a heinous plot. Rest assured, though, that Fox News is on the case, and they will fight the good fight within an inch of their lives. However strange this interview was, and how grateful I was that my friend shared it with me, it did provoke an interesting thought. We sometimes get obsessed with measuring things. We measure our popularity by the number of likes on Facebook or our followers on Instagram. I always measure how busy I am by the number of emails I come back to after my day off. As kids, we sometimes measure the worth of a whole year by the number of Christmas presents under the tree. And as adults, we measure a whole day by the number of cups of coffee it takes to get through. We have Fitbits to measure how active we are and Netflix to measure how lazy we are. In churches, we can get hung up on the measures of church attendance and finances, but on the other hand, it helps us produce things like the narrative budget that tells the beautiful story of the immeasurable faith that lives behind those measurements. In politics, there are pollsters and lobbyists whose singular job it is to measure the approval ratings of politicians, and a Canadian journalist was recently hired by CNN after devoting his career to measuring the honesty of a certain politician. We love to measure things, to quantify things, to give them value. Which perhaps begs the question, how do we measure God? How do we understand the breadth and the depth and the height of the one who we call God, how would we even begin? It may not surprise you to know that the Bible has some interesting things to say about this. Despite any claims made by certain journalists about the manifest destiny of feet and inches, the story of Moses and the wandering Hebrews tells us that perhaps we measure God by cubits. 
It is, after all, in the book of Exodus where we find the detailed instructions given to Moses on how to construct the Ark of the Covenant, a wooden chest that measured two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits by one and a half cubits, about four feet by two feet by two feet. And it was within this Ark that the stone tablets of the law given at Sinai were kept, along with a container, a jar of the manna from heaven that was given to them in the wilderness, and the rod of Aaron, which, fo- which comes from the story of Exodus. But more importantly, for the wilderness-bound Hebrews, the ark was the holy presence of God in their midst. Fast forward several generations, and we hear the story of King Solomon leading the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem. A little more spacious for God, this was. This was at about 60 by 20 by 30 cubits, of course or about 2,700 square feet, or roughly five downtown Toronto condos. But these are mere buildings and constructions, and despite the specificity of the building instructions that God gives to Moses and to Solomon, each in their own time, we know that there exists a far richer, far more spacious theology that helps us understand the breadth and the depth of God. For example, the beautiful psalms which we hear each week, which convey to us the pure immensity, the immeasurable nature of the one we are privileged to call God. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. It's what we prayed together this evening in Psalm 146, reminding us that all that we have around us is at the hands of God. Just the same, today on this Trinity Sunday, we celebrate the glory of God that we know in three ways. God, the creator and author of all things. Jesus Christ, the word of God made flesh, as we heard in the second reading tonight. And the Holy Spirit, which we celebrated on the Feast of Pentecost last week. The very energy and activity and spirit of God that dwells within and energizes each of us. It's the mystery of the Trinity that we are given to know the three-in-one and the one-in-three God in this peculiar, indescribable, immeasurable way, Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. But even these, while lovely, graceful theologies, complex and beautiful, still leave us with that enduring question, how could we ever measure God? And that brings us truly to two wonderful texts we've heard this evening. Two texts that remind us that it's in the lived experience that we see God, that we can begin to attempt to measure the presence of God in our lives. In the passage From the 38th chapter of the book of Job, we heard as our first reading tonight, we hear God's response to Job, who has been lamenting for most of the first 37 chapters, about the brutal unfairness of God because of the suffering he has endured in recent days. We only heard a portion of that response, but when we see the whole thing, we see God reveal to Job the magnificent, magnificent intricacy of God's creative work and God's ongoing care of that creation of which humanity is just a part. But mocking Job just a bit, 
or maybe mocking our own human nature to demand that God bow to our desires, God replies to Job's complaints, asking him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you give the horse its might? Look at Behemoth, which I made just as I made you, God says to Job, for the mountains yield food for it where all the wild animals play. Look around you, God says, in this great revelation to Job, and see just a glimpse of the measure of God. In creation, we see God. In the wonder of nature, we see the care of God. In the smallest and in the largest of the world, in the visible and the invisible, we find the length and the breadth of God's elaborate work in each and everything. Which is the very idea reflected in the wonderful anthem sung by our choir this evening, Rejoice in the Lamb coming from a poem written by Christopher Smart while he was in the care of what would probably graciously be called mental health facilities in the mid-18th century England, this poem nonetheless reveals to us what God likewise really revealed to Job. Rejoice in God, O ye tongues, give glory to the Lord. Let man and beast appear before him and magnify his name altogether. And beginning with the most ancient stories of our tradition, he invokes the names of scriptural figures to together bless the Lord, Daniel and David, along with more dubious figures like Balaam and Nimrod. But it's not just there. It's everywhere around him, too, that he sees evidence of God's great majesty. In his cat, Jeffrey, a servant of the living God by whom he takes occasion to bless Almighty God not how I feel about my cat, but anyway. The valor of a male mouse protecting its mate from a threatening cat. The blessing of flowers which are the poetry of Christ. Even these letters of the alphabet which stand for him as markers of God. K, the king. L, love. M, for music. And music, he goes on and finds God in the tone and timbre of the musical instruments. All this is God in his midst. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah from the heart of God and from the hand of the artist inimitable, from the echo of the heavenly harp in sweetness, magnificent and mighty. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. For all of this poem's peculiarity, at the same time it highlights the peculiarity of God's constantly discernible presence around us in all time and all place and all circumstance. God is in all and with all and reflected in all. So back to our question. How could we ever measure God? Well, let's take a page from the book of Job. Job, just gobsmacked by it all, lost amid his own preoccupation, suddenly sees God at work in it all and says, I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So we, may we measure God not by cubits or feet or meters, but by God's immeasurable love.
May we appreciate God not just by the wishes fulfilled, but by God's unexpected grace appearing and erupting everywhere in our lives. Like Christopher Smart, the poet behind tonight's anthem, may we find God in the common and in the uncommon, in the obviously holy and the curiously ordinary. And may we come to know the breadth, the depth, and the height of God by the ways we see the incredible, beautiful work of God in the world. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Rejoice in God, O ye tongues. Give glory to the Lord. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.